Tour is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace and it's the perfect app for travel. I was recently traveling overseas for seven weeks in multiple cities. Turo made it so easy to find the type of car that I needed in each city, including various things like a car seat, snow tires, and a lot of space. I live in SF Austin and Sydney, and I use their cars wherever I am and when I'm traveling. I don't have a car in SF and Austin, and we just use Turo. The booking process is so convenient, and the hosts are awesome. Go to Turo.com and download the app today. Sendar is the OG startup accounting firm in Australia, catering for all stages of your business's life. If you're busy running your startup, you don't have time to do your own books and forecast. Instead, fully outsource your finance function, giving you time and resources back to focus on what you do best, which is growing your business. For a free one-hour consultation about your business's growth plans and finance needs, head to sendar.com. That's S-C-E-N-D-A-R.com. Okay, three, two, one. Hey, I'm Cheryl. I'm Maxine. This is First Check, part of Day One, the network dedicated to founders, operators, and investors. If you want to be a better early stage investor, this is the show for you. So TLDR, if you don't want to suck at investing, listen up. Welcome. Today we have Annabelle Lippincott Paxoy on the pod, and I am so, so, so excited to have her here. Uh, we've been friends for a very long time, and I have been inspired by her from the day that I met her. I am just wowed by her as an angel investor. She was actually my on ramp into investing through uh, a community that she put together in SF many, many years ago, which I'm excited to dive in and talk about community with her. Um, Watching her angel invest is just like incredible at developing networks and communities that are super high signal, really wonderful humans as well, and just kind of wonderful thought partners to help be better investors. And she's done some really cool stuff. Uh, She is now a partner at 43, which is a really cool pre-seed fund based in the Bay Area, and also a partner at the council and just a wonderful human. So, so excited to dive in today and talk to her about all things early stage investing, pre-seed and, and community. That's awesome. I don't know Annabelle personally. I'm excited to get to know her a little bit more today, but anyone who started a community for female angels to get together and learn more is a-okay in my books. And <laughs> I'm also really excited to learn more about pre-seed investing because we don't have very many true pre-seed investors in Australia. So yeah, really excited to hear Annabelle's thoughts around uh, pre-seed investing. So Welcome, Annabelle. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a treat to be here with you guys. Amazing. So the first question that we ask everyone who comes on is, what is the first thing that you invested in? I think if I really have to rack my brain, it's going to be a couple CDs. (laughs) Incredible. Likely something like an Avril Lavigne CD, you know, in the early aughts, uh, if I have to, I think. And if I was smart, I would have hung on to those, but... um, because I think they're going to be a relic someday, but uh, <laughs> no, they've they've made their way into landfill at this point. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. I heard uh, I heard those get auctioned off for lots of money now. So like, you've... yeah, right, right. If you're anything like me, though, my like early CDs, my early CDs, I took them everywhere with me, and I scratched them up something fierce. And so, especially my favorite songs would be like really glitchy by the time. You know, I was ready to part ways and send them into landfill. Oh, yes. Theater Boy is completely unlistenable at that point. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I was just going to say, I wonder if uh, like a disc man would ever have the like cachet that a record player does. But I just don't think the technology holds up the same way mm. that vinyl does. So uh, unfortunately, I think 
you know, CDs are, are in a bygone era at this point. Yeah, sadly. Uh, unfortunately, not a great investment. <laughs> right, exactly. not a great investment. <laughs> Do not judge me on that. <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about animals and animals investing yeah, now. Yeah, I'm really good at the early stage. <laughs> 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 I I just don't know that you could these days convince someone to wear a discman on their belt in the way that we used to. Remember we used to carry them around like a it was almost like a discus, like huge chunky thing. I mean the headphones are back, you're looking amazing with your headphones, but like Thank you so much. The like being handheld like takes up a whole part of you. Um it's yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And yeah, like, I don't think we could do I it. I mean, we the whole like, you know, iPod mini or whatever, the iPod like that whole thing. Just like when you think back on one of the fun things I think about our generation, like the true millennial, not the like cuspy, you know, Gen Z generation, but like we literally were their like first smartphones, like in their coming of age years. And I think that journey is like pretty cool. Yeah. I'm happy that we're in our like golden years professionally now, you know, kind of entering into <laughs> your like mid thirties to early fifties is like when you can like, actually you're like the, you know, you can kind of reference it and it's like still a little bit nostalgic but at the same time it's like nope you're you're still kind of current at the same time so I'm having a little fun yeah. aging I have to say like <laughs> <laughs> you're making me excited I'm like I'm right there with you this is great <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm ready I'm like ready for my Eileen Fisher like baggy clothes moment so that's right, that's where right. I'm at yeah perfect perfect I'm here for it definitely a nostalgic moment in terms of like there were like culottes and baggy jeans and those like huge like echo shoes that I used to wear that I was like pretty embarrassed having been through that fashion era for like a solid 20 years there and now I'm seeing like the coolest people like Gen Z is wearing those outfits again and I'm like wow yes okay I don't feel as bad for those horrible fashion moments yeah we're back in it totally <laughs> yeah I'm happy for it I'm right here for it same so I, one of the things, as I mentioned in the little kind of intro is my observation of you kind of over this kind of part of your journey has just been, you've just been incredible at building community. Maybe for our audience, Annabelle was the first people hire at Open Door and went on that journey uh, with the team and then stepped out and joined a female first co-working space called The Assembly, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, RIP Assembly, and built the community there and just did like an incredible job of building really high signal, really wonderful human group together in this, this physical space. Um, and then built uh, the council, which is a female first investing group in, in the Bay Area and now all over the US, right? got members in all four corners of the continental US. So I'd love to just hear how you think about building communities. Why do it? What are some things that you've noticed about what works really well in communities? What destroys them? I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on community generally, and then maybe we can dive in a little bit deeper. For sure. Well, thank you so much for the kind words. And uh, Maxine, you've always been a huge champion and like member of, of the communities that I've been able, privileged to be a part of and help build and it's been folks like you who've kind of stepped forward and like highlighted what's special about it that even like gives us the chance to reflect on what is it that we are building here and like what is that special sauce? Yeah, I wish that I think like we would not be suffering from a loneliness epidemic or pandemic, whatever, right? And I think we'd all be very rich if we knew how to, if we had a blueprint for building community that was repeatable and if we could monetize those two things. And I think... I say that because I think that a lot of times when we talk about community, 
people end up wanting to know like how how can I like go and build a community like tell me how to do it or I want to make a business out of a community and I think those two things are super not like of course like who doesn't love the feeling of belonging that comes from a great community and then why shouldn't that be something that you could turn into like a successful business however I think one of the annoying, frustrating slash magical parts about true community is that it's not quantifiable. It's not exactly, it's kind of like cooking versus baking, I like to say. Like it's a little of this, it's a little of that. It's like why I like to cook and I'm not a baker, right? It's like you're never going to make the same recipe twice and you know, you can follow the guidelines, but ultimately what makes each community special is really, really about the members. And I think I'll stop waxing philosophical for a moment and just say explicitly that, yes, some of the communities that I've been a part of, specifically the assembly, like obviously that was a business in that it was a co-working space centered around like building community. The council is now a community that is trying, you know, like has a paid membership and is also has a venture fund that's spun out of it. So I'm not trying to suggest it can't happen. But if, you know, when we look back on some of the like precious early moments, and this happens in companies as well, like we like, oh, we like we reminisce about the early days and et cetera. I think it's that like je ne sais quoi, like the kind of like the thing you can't really put your finger on is something that I think is this weird, like unspoken social contract that happens as you're building a community, which is really it's kind of nothing except for a group of people who uh, are either like implicitly or explicitly agreed to show up, be in each other's like company and presence, usually around a shared either goal, interest or purpose. And really your job as a community builder is to try to identify what that common goal is and shared purpose and then really just like hold space and and design the container for that. And what that what I mean by container, I mean like, operating principles, so to speak, of like, how do we talk to each other? How do you join? What what are we asking of each other? And then I think the other the other thing in terms of holding space is that you really need to like ensure that people who are a part of it are contributing in some way to the community in order to feel like truly bought in. So I'll pause there because I can go on and on and on and on. But I think community at its core is like it's hard to design. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many threads. <laughs> I mean, I love that um, baking versus cooking analogy because it really does feel like those early communities and even like huge scale thriving communities, there is a like almost like an organic system to them, kind of like a garden or something that there's like iterative and it's kind of growing over time. And your work is that kind of curation as opposed to the like construction of it. And this kind of idea of creating the container for it. One of the things, especially in investing, especially in the like pre-seed seed and maybe even kind of further along, is building a community of people that are high signal that send you interesting deals. And so thinking about how do you construct that maybe more amorphous community that they might not share a kind of identity as a group. But how do you think about constructing that community of folks that send you really great, great deals? Do you thoughtfully construct it or is it at this point something that just like is your natural game? So I think the council, which is the 
we used to call it like a consortium. Essentially, it was a group of other women who were interested in investing as angel investors. And the goal of the council was just to get together and share deal flow. Um, we did not invest as a, as a group. There was no shared investment vehicle. It was not even like a formal entity. It was literally just a group of people who were sharing deal flow and talking through deals as like a learning exercise. And it was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> I think the reason I offered that context is because I think that, and, and it still exists today. Again, it's a little bit larger in scale. But I think the reason I offer that context is because at the early days when I was learning how to invest, the I didn't know how to invest, but I knew how to build a community. And I knew that I didn't want to invest on my own. And so I was like, okay, let me build a community as a learning platform for myself. Now I would say it's a little bit building the kind of network and your like deal flow, flywheel, et cetera. That is more and more second nature to me. Sure. But it's because of like this, mu the muscle that I built um, through creating that more intentional like group to share deal flow. The thing I want to say about that is it doesn't mean you have to go off and create like a group every time you want to like cultivate your network and ignite it to, to be this like powerful referral engine. I think the thing that I needed, and again, this is like, it's interesting how like trends have shifted too. like, even in 2018, it was like, which is five years ago at this point, like it was a little bit new for operators, female operators who were not like already super independently wealthy to think about deploying capital as independent investors into startups. That's not to say that people didn't do it. They did. But part of the reason why I started the council was because it actually was just frustrating to me that the dudes around me were just talking about deals and sharing those deals with each other. And that that wasn't a conversation topic in my peer group. I am here for girl talk. And like, <laughs> again, I was like part of the assembly, which was like a women's well-being space. We were talking like woo-woo astrology, you know, <laughs> birth control. Should I be a parent? You know, am I going to rent the runway, which I'm a big believer in. But the point is, is like we were having all those conversations. But it's for me, it was like a yes and. I wanted to also talk about this other stuff that felt like I I felt out of place asking my male counterparts. And so that is why I the council, I just wanted to like surround myself with those people. So I think if you find yourself in a place where you just have a little bit more confidence to talk about it with people, that's the number one thing I would say around just putting, I'm a big believer in energy and just like putting the energy out there. Like I'm open to this. I want to talk about this. Send me your stuff like just literally saying that in conversation and naming it is a big step towards cultivating that like micro community around you 100 percent. that's so interesting i feel so many similarities between my experience just like a few years later that when i started angel investing there was very few female angel investors in australia in general and the very few communities that existed were somewhat gated and I really struggled to to find other people that were willing to like let me in and, you know, include me in the conversation when it came to angel investing. And so I I started a like a, an angel group as well called 361 Angel Club. Cool. And that turned into a more formal community. But 
at the start, I really struggled. And so I, I hear so many similarities there. And it's, I love that uh, you, I hate that you experience the same thing, but I, it really resonates with me. Um, and maybe you get this, like one of the things that I get now that I'm, you know, somewhat experienced a few years down the road is that I often have new angels coming to me asking like, hey, how do I get involved in, in this angel thing? Like, where do I go? What do I do? And I'd love to like, wh what's your answer to that question when people come to you and ask you that question? Where do you direct them? What do you share with them? What are the, some of the first things that you make sure they know? Yeah, great question. I think Maxine knows this. I'm a bit of a cynic, even though, as so I like to, I, I, what I like to say is like, I like to bite the hand that feeds me in that <laughs> I often like shit on startup <laughs> land, even though that's like my livelihood. Um, but the point is, is that I think not dissimilar to the process. I've never converted to Judaism, but I know you're supposed to be dissuaded a few times before you convert. <laughs> um, I, I do like to remind people when they come to me asking, like, how should I angel invest that it's inherently a very, very high risk asset class and should not be participated in unless you are aware of that and essentially willing to lose the money. The reason I bring that up is that I think that now, as it becomes an increasingly like trendier, I think people might think that it's somehow like a must or like it is a way to like flex and like professionally. Mm. And that all may be true, but it's not the only way to do this. And so I think when people um, I like helping people feel more comfortable angel investing, but I never want somebody like to participate in the council or, or make an investment that does make them feel uncomfortable, like at their core. I'm okay if it's like a little scary, but it's like if they really are doing it for the wrong reasons, air quote, yeah, um, because they feel like they must, I, that's something that I think is important to vet right off the bat. So that's definitely one of the first things I say. I know, Maxine, you and I have talked a little bit about this idea of like angel investing can be treated almost like tuition, like a learning budget, right? Yeah, absolutely. Insofar as like the budget that you allocate towards investing, you can be prepared to lose it. And that's okay if you are doing a lot of learning along the way. So I'm curious, do you still talk about that or is that, do you guys think of it that way at all? Oh, absolutely. Maxine gave them a name. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Um, <laughs> we call them learning checks. <laughs> nice. Learning checks. Yeah, because be, I had this conversation two times yesterday and I've had it like maybe 50 plus times over the last month yeah because so many people are as you said it's getting trendy more people are looking at angel investing as a um way of building wealth but also learning getting access etc there's a whole bunch of um you know potential reasons that people are investing and i think normalizing that you know for that first probably year maybe two like you've got so much learning to do to be able to actually like confidently start to write those checks. And so being able to write the smallest possible check, so maximal learning for minimal downside, I think is really crucial. I'm not sure if you're aware, Annabelle, but we actually, Cheryl started the Angel List for Australia and it's only a couple of years old. So to give you an idea of kind of ecosystem maturity in Australia, we are really new to this version, like to having syndicates, this like fractionalized access to angel investing. So it is almost universal in Australia that most of the people I meet, they think to be an angel investor, you need to deploy 500K per check as opposed to the like $1,000, $2,000 per check you can actually start angel investing in. 
And so it is much more possible today, like to get a lot of learnings and do that kind of 10 to 15 checks per year for a much lower entry price, right? So yeah, it's it's a very exciting time for the Australian ecosystem, but I think that's right. Like normalizing this idea that you should, this is a long-term game, you want to learn. And so thinking about what's the best way you can learn from those early learning checks. Totally. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, like, to give you an example, like Maxine's learning check was 2,500 and mine was 20K because you simply <laughs> couldn't invest less than that when I started angel investing. <laughs> totally. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. I started out with a 10K check size. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, as a reflection, because at the time I started learning in the US and you started learning in Australia. And at the time in Australia, like 20K would have been the like absolute bare minimum. Whereas... I think that in you know the US you could get into because of products like AngelList you could get in to to deals at a much earlier stage. But I do I like I, I do think that that fact alone is one that not everyone knows in the US and almost no one knows in Australia. So one that's like definitely worth evangelizing a little more so folks folks understand that they don't have to be writing those those huge checks to start off with and that they can be maximizing their learning. Totally. I think one other thing that we found at the council is that we had a lot of people who one of the reasons they wanted to get involved in angel investing was actually to contribute to the founder's journey. And that was actually like something that I think was pretty universal as like a why for folks, which is that they didn't just want to write the check, though there were some of those folks and we need those people too, right? Like not every, not every founder wants all of their investors to be like weighing in at all times. <laughs> but the point is, is that I think I like to remind people that like your check, I used to say like my checks are small but mighty, right? And so far as like I might be deploying a small check, but it comes with me and a lot of my effort. And you can also like sell yourself as an advisor who wants to put your money in alongside of their time. Um, and I think that was something that in the early days of the council, when we were getting women comfortable with just like getting involved, deploying capital and actually like pitching themselves to a founder, which I think as an investor, you have to start like getting good at that. I think pitching themselves as like investor plus or like advisor who's going to put some money in. And I think that is a really good way to put small checks in because you can essentially say like, look, I'm putting in 5K or less, right? But I'm going to give you time, uh, my time as well. And I've actually even suggested and for myself, like asked for like, hey, I'm going to give you 10K, but I want 20K of equity, right? Because I'm going to like give you my woman power alongside of that. And so that's like a good way to kind of amplify the actual dollars, I think, in the early days as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen a few folks do that. Actually, Dustin, who is your partner at 43, was our first pre-seed investor at Fairshake. Yes. And he did a very similar thing, right? Yes. He wrote the check and also negotiated advisor uh, equity on top of that. And like, man, did he earn that equity? He was so useful and such a wonderful partner to us as we were building the business. So I think it can be a really, really powerful model. Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven Accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars Network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. 
One thing that, that jumps out to me here is we're talking about this. And when I think about you, you're just always kind of the right step ahead of the curve, right? You're not so far out ahead in trends that you like build it. things before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you build things and then like they wither on the vine. But I mean, just the like angel investing example, the kind of community building example, you're just the right amount kind of ahead. I wonder, and this is maybe like purely selfish, but like what cool things are you seeing in terms of innovation in the angel investing space, innovation in the like fund structuring space, innovation in the investing world generally? Have you seen anything cool recently? Yeah. I mean, I think I'll have to like talk a little bit about my current project. Yes, please. Which is 43. It's a pre-product fund. Dustin, the investor that was uh, Maxine was just referencing, is my partner in the fund, and Maxine was our was our matchmaker. So major props to that. <laughs> what I mean by like talking about my current project is I think that as I was kind of happily kind of bopping along as an angel investor, I didn't actually envision professionalizing, and by that I meant like I just deploying other people's capital did not feel like it was really something that I would be like would want. And a part of that is because I think there's a lot of autonomy and power in like making decisions on your own. <laughs> and the idea of having to kind of go and like join a firm with a thesis that's not yours and, you know, have this idea of like consensus-based partner decision-making was just like not appealing to me. Um, that being said, like it takes money to make money. And so, you know, it's it's hard to imagine becoming like having this be like a real financial, like, you know, positive outcome when you're deploying a total of $100,000 versus, you know, like, mm. you know, across years. Right. Absolutely. And so I think that one of the things that we're doing at 43 that I do think is really impactful for the space, and I think this the space like needs it is this idea of professionalizing the angel check. And what that means is is staying independent, as in staying kind of as a conviction-based decision maker and capitalizing angels. Now, I think that idea is not new. It's been around for a while in the US. Um, and this idea of like things like scout programs, which are where like funds um, offer small budgets to well-connected folks. Um, it, you know, for a lot of really diff different reasons. And, you know, AngelList itself, uh, you know, kind of started a program around this. Um, but I think the thing that we're working on now is this idea of actually wanting to think about becoming a relatively like full-time angel investor. So not somebody who is doing something on, on the side, but actually honing it as a craft, as a professional skill set. And when I say a professional, when I say that, I mean someone who's like really in the weeds as at the individual level in the company building work as an investor. And that is, I think, what the, the, the term angel um, originally kind of means is this idea of somebody who's like taking a bet on you, who's out in like the wilderness of social proof. Like no one else is like, you know, there's not a ton of signal here. They are writing a check uh, for you early and they are along the ride with you. Um, and they're, you know, they're not your board member. They're the call before the board member call. Right. Um, and so we are currently trying raising a fund against this thesis, this idea that we should be able to capitalize 
um, full-time professional angel investors. Um, and that idea of really like giving that craft itself the time, space, and money to like become like a financial, you know, financially viable solution is kind of this idea. Yes, yes, yes. I am so there for this idea of like being out there in the wilderness of social proof. I'm just like, I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to steal that terminology. It is just incredible <laughs> because I do think that that is what pre-seed is supposed to be, mm-hmm. right? Like pre, like the very, very early stuff, what I think of uh, as like American style pre-seed is kind of out there in the wilderness prior to social proof. And I meet a lot of companies in Australia where they are like very much in the social proof now and they're still kind of being considered pre-seed companies, but they have a product, they have early traction, they have early customers, et cetera. And to me, I think we are really missing in Australia that like true, a professionalized group of people that are doing that kind of true out there in the wilderness prior to social proof. Well, at least we were missing that and hopefully co-ventures can deliver on that promise to founders. But I do, I shouldn't say there's no one there. I'm out there. <laughs> I was going to say, you're there. Yeah. But there's, and there's a kind of a handful of angels that are willing to do that work. <laughs> um, and there's a, there's a handful of people that do it. And I think part of it has been that like we ha- are traditionally more risk averse, but part of it is also just like, like most founders here, I think, are less willing to put up their hand and say, hey, I'm working on this until it gets to like that social proof. So I'd be curious to see like, or I guess ask how, how do you go about finding them? Are you searching in the wilderness for these companies? Or are they just more open about it in the US? I don't know the comparison. Maxine, you probably have to speak to that. I think that I would say yes, there is a a lot, uh, even like there's been like this natural downturn in the market, right? We I know we've all experienced that globally. So in the very like recent past, but I would say the, especially I keep referring to startup land. I think I mean really like the kind of Bay Area and the coastal communities of like kind of tech dominated uh, workforce and like kind of millennial Gen Z folks mostly. The idea of being a founder and like working and hacking on your startup is definitely, I would say, like making its way to the mainstream to the point where people are doing that, talking about that a lot. I do think that a lot of people never kind of get off the ground with those ideas. And that like that is not because there isn't a lot of money available to those people right now for what we're what we're talking about, right? Where like, yes, pre-seed may be earlier in the US than it is in Australia, but even so, like, you know, funds and professional investing has been shifting like later and later, which is why we're talking about the white space of the early days right now. One of the things that I think is important to me, I don't have like a mandate personally to like seek a certain profile founder like demographically, but I find that you find a lot more different types of founders when you're willing to write an early check because otherwise you are only really able to invest in founders who can afford for lack of a better term to float themselves while they have while they build their company Mm. or are building their companies while working full-time which is just not like the velocity that you typically want to see and so I think that is part of why I like this stage is that the goal of my check is to allow the founder to go full time on their idea and amass their founding team and like set up their first kind of learning experiment. And that's pretty much it. 
Um, and so you really are kind of living on a prayer at that point. Like we're talking very, very, very early that the checks that I'm that I'm writing. And I think that that gives me a lot of freedom to leverage my background in people operations um, as my core decision making framework. I like to joke that I would not make a great professional growth investor because I'm not a finance person, <laughs> but I think I make a pretty good, you know, founder oriented um, founder selection investor, which is really what you're talking about when you're talking about the earliest of stages. Absolutely. I mean, I think like your background in the people space, you you see it being such a core strength in the wonderful investments you make and the kind of founders that you find. And I think there's probably a thread there from your like community days as well, like your ability to like find amazing folks, vet them really well, and then like invest at that, that super, super early stage. So could you say more about what you look for? Like what are the kind of founders that you are when you meet them? You're just like, heck yes, I'm so excited to kind of back you to make this, this first step out of your full-time job or kind of full-time into this idea. Yeah. I learned actually like the concept of a decision diary is not new. This is this idea where you kind of like proverbially journal as you make your decision. Um, but I do have to give props to Maxine as one of the most thorough like decision diaries and great frameworks that I like. And you also were kind of like a notion evangelist. So it was like in notion, which like felt fancy at the time because there was like toggles <laughs> and stuff. Anyways, the point is, is that <laughs> of course there is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I would say that I've like honed um, the formality of this um, over time as I've professionalized. So I, I want to say, like, I think before we dive into this decision-making thing, I just want to name, like, this is another area that we see early investors get, like, nervous about, which is how do I build conviction and actually how do I know? And I'll talk a little bit about how there's, like, a gut feeling and whatever. And, again, I want to say angel investing is highly risky, and so there is going to be a moment where you just, like, jump in like off the deep end and so that's a little bit why like thinking why those like learning checks you're giving yourself permission there and stuff like at a certain point you're never going to get to like if everyone knew what was going to be great from the beginning like there wouldn't be such a thing as like this this whole space 100 percent. so i just want to suggest that like there is always going to be a lot of unknowns when you invest especially early stage but i think for me the things that i know that I look for um, in people. Yeah, as you said, like I went surrounding myself with people um, and the things that I look for in founders when I think about supporting them is some kind of like deep, 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 deep why that they're doing what they're doing. Um, and I read a business case about how like HR tech is like the next big space is not what I'm talking about, right? But like, oh yeah, I grew up around my family business, which was, you know, this and, or I, you know, from since the first job I had, I noticed that there was like these customers that we were serve servicing and they were missing this big thing in their life that could really make it better. Or I've been validating this hypothesis from within my operational roles uh, for a long, long time. Or, you know, my child is experiencing this thing and I need to like, whatever, right? So I need like a deeply personal and like, deeply like authentic for like I know that's like eh, authenticity but like I need a, a deep <laughs> a deep why that really is like defendable to the person and I because I think that being a founder is 
not that fun when a push comes to shove. And so they need to have like a purpose driven reason that they're solving this, this problem. And um, to that end, I think like obviously grit and resilience are really critical. And I think what I want to see around that that is, are they super married to the idea of like how they're going to solve the problem or are they, you know, can I see that they would like pivot? Cause I think the idea of like pivoting is actually, I love a pivot. Like, I think it, it shows that like you are building like a rapid uh, learning engine. And the last thing I'd say is something that I like to call followership. I think ultimately to be a founder, you have to be a leader in some way, shape or form. And leadership can have a lot of different like flavors, but I, people need to like follow you in, in again, into this wilderness, right? Cause like startups are like that too. And so I want to feel that conviction and there's no way to vet that. That's where it gets super personal. What I like to say is like, could I fall in love with this founder? And I don't mean romantically. I mean, like, would I actually go work for them? You know, is this person going to be able to attract top talent and investors around them? And like, are they, do they have like that thing that you can't really put your finger on the pulse of that is their kind of like leadership? Um, and that's something that I call followership. Um, and so those are like the core kind of founder selection tools. The other thing I always say is like, can I explain the business model to my husband? <laughs> Depends. What does your husband do? Right. No, he's like a pretty nerdy, like engineer who is like relatively, you know, risk averse. So it's helpful to me <laughs> to like, I don't need to deeply understand like the space as much as the founder does, but I do need to be able to at least explain it to somebody who's going to ask me tough follow-up questions. Mm. I want to understand it. I don't need to go diligencing everybody I know who's in that space. Like I need, I need to at least be able to like really feel confident and able to explain it. So those are the, like some of my kind of decision diary points. I love that. Oh, I love those. I'm so curious. Like how much time do you spend with a founder to get to that stage in order to determine whether they're, you know, have the followership, have the 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 deep why. Yeah, I would say like shockingly not that long. So um, <laughs> I would say always a 30 minute meeting at the start just to be like, is this at all like someone that I want to keep talking to? Kind of like a first drink state, so to speak. And then like the second date, the second meeting <laughs> is like an hour long tell me your life story. And, and I mean that literally, I'll be like, so where were you born? Like, what's like, tell, then what happened? Then, then what happened? You know, like a real deep dive into who they are. Um, and if they have a co-founder, then I, I want to meet that co-founder and understand the same things and also want to understand their relationship pretty carefully. So that will often be like a follow-up conversation. And then I usually have a third conversation around like the actual experiments that they're planning on running. So like the kind of obviously like the traction that they might have or have not, but then what are they doing? Like, what are they going to do with the money? Essentially, like what, what are they actually planning on doing? And, and I'm not talking about like, what's their big vision. It's great to hear that. But like, what does your next three months look like? What are your next, you know, 12 months look like? Very cool. Very interesting. It's, it never ceases to amaze me. Cause I think like you're the way that you think about pre-seed investing and the way that you think about kind of backing that early founder I haven't found anyone in Australia who speaks about it in the same way. And, I, and that was my experience living in the Bay or still living in the Bay. You know, like the the willingness to like really go to the human level as opposed to try to manufacture some like investment case on a business model that 
is so far from being built yet. It's really refreshing to hear and be reminded like how important that first human evaluation is that kind of who are they as people where do they come from what does their story tell you about their likely trajectory from here um and you are obviously one of the best people in the world to make that evaluation right like you come from that people background and uh like have a wonderful instinct and a honed instinct over time of picking really wonderful people for chasing really hard problems and it's so obvious in the kind of way that you built you've built 43 it's super super cool so when you think about like where you're excited about stage, I mean, like industry wise, do you develop theses about, you know, we think there's going to be some interesting stuff in this space or we want to see a change in this world or do you just totally focus on the founder? I have started to see some patterns in my own investing, but those are, it's almost like, um, I was about to say chicken or egg, but that doesn't apply because that means we don't know which came first. But uh, um, <laughs> I would say that um, I'm starting to kind of retroactively pattern match a little bit. Mm. And so I think what what I mean by that is like I'm drawn towards people who are really like uh, been in the guts of like bit of companies and problems um, that are very, very unsexy and understand that they want to like bring SaaS innovation to it, essentially, right? So we're talking, you know, real estate, um, freight shipping, supply chain acquisition of building materials. And that's definitely one part of it. The other thing that I find myself drawn towards is people who are trying to solve problems for niche communities. So I think that's another like thing that probably like fires like a little bit of my background, but I, um, a couple projects that I'm excited about right now are, are people trying to solve problems for podcasters or trying to solve problems for micro influencers. Um, meaning folks that are, um, have like a followership naturally and they want, people want to transact within that group. Um, and so like helping them kind of facilitate transactions within their, within their like micro community. Um, you know, folks that are, who are a part of like the freelancing community and they want to like solve problems for the freelancing community, things like that. So I would say that those are not, those are all like broadly different spaces. Those are going to be different approaches and different business models. But I find myself thinking about how, why they're attracted to the problem and that whether or not the problem itself um, is something that I think is how they've made the decision that this is a problem is kind of what I, is what I'm saying. So uh, yeah, I guess that what that means is like I'm not opposed to investing in Web3, like, which you know, crypto and stuff. I'm not opposed to investing in AI, but I'm not going to I'm not going to go at my sourcing with that constraint and filter. It's going to be potentially businesses you know, leveraging those technologies um, to solve uh, some a different problem. So cool. So cool. I mean, I just feel like I could chat to you all day. Always. Yeah. And every time we chat, I just feel like I leave totally inspired. That's so generous. I will say I have been so inspired by your, constantly inspired by your bravery and your ability to kind of see trends early in front run. So I'm super excited to ask you our standard uh, closing question for these conversations, which is, yes, what is your biggest big cojones moment? A moment that you have done something really brave? Probably like becoming a parent. Fair. But I think related to what we're talking about right now, I think I think writing that first check, honestly, it, it, that's a big that's a big thing. Um, and essentially doing that with uh, like all the conviction in the world that I want this product to exist 
and I'm okay if it doesn't, you know, meaning like I'm okay if it doesn't work out, but I want to be along for the ride. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert, like that investment is, has gone to zero. So, um, and I'm, <laughs> I don't regret it. So I think that is... <laughs> that's such a great thing to hear though. I feel like as a first check writer as well, like you also, this is the first check podcast. I don't know if Maxine mentioned, but like, yes, yes. you know, to, to have someone come on here and say that they absolutely do not regret in any way, shape or form their very first check that they wrote is really great. Yeah. That's the best. Yeah. No. Yeah. And again, I lost all the money just to reiterate. <laughs> just, to re- so. just to be super clear. You lost the money. Got it. <laughs> Duly noted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, guys. This was really fun and exciting what you guys are, are doing with this space. And I love, I, I giggle every time I read first check with the QUE. I'm always like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh. That's amusing. I love it. Um, <laughs> I'm always like, oh, cute. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. And as always, this has been such a pleasure. Um, thank you. Thank you, Annabelle. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye.